0: Um, We're going to move, we're going to move immediately into a, uh, into a closing session, Um, and we're delighted to have on the line from the United States, there he is, Ambassador Arthur Sinodinos, to offer um, some closing remarks. Um, Arthur, of course, um, a great friend of the United States Study Center, was present at the creation, so to speak. Uh, working in the office of uh, then Prime Minister John Howard <clears throat> uh, at the time of the Senate's creation. And, um, and then, of course, uh, while he was serving in the Australian Senate, um, uh, a great supporter of ours, um, we were so thrilled to hear he'd been um, asked to take on this role uh, in the United States and uh, joins a, um, a line of um, Australian ambassadors to the United States. Um, that have been great friends of the centre and, and helped us and the Perth Centre just have unprecedented access um, in, in, in Washington. And in turn, the signal that sends to the rest of the embassy team, um, great partnerships we have with senior uh, uh, Australian diplomats, um, literally at a week-by-week level, um, so that we are, we are tracking nicely um, with the issues they are working on. Um, and it's just very, very, very pleased with that relationship. Um, One of the many tangible ways um, I feel that the two centres can work in the national interest, and that comes uh, through the the great and very close relationships we've established at the top of the tree, uh, but with uh, Ambassador Sinodinas in particular. And so, Arthur, um, 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 thank you for joining us there in the evening in, in Washington. Thank you. Uh, Floor is yours for for some remarks, Arthur. Thank you.
1: Uh, Thanks very much, Simon. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, we've got you, Arthur. Absolutely.
1: Excellent. Um, Look, when I was uh, asked uh, if I might make some remarks here, um, I thought that was going to be a really good idea from my point of view because I got to read this report, the State of the United States report, and I found it a really comprehensive, well-researched contribution to, I suppose, our game plan in dealing with the Biden administration going forward. Uh, And I looked at it and I found a number of similarities with areas that we here at the Embassy are focused on, plus some pointers about some other stuff that we can really focus on but let me bring you up to date with where things seem to be at in Washington at the moment. The administration have just been able to get the $1.9 trillion package. The rescue plan through the Congress, the president has signed it. Uh, Very important achievement for the president. Uh, While he was keen to get bipartisanship in the end, what became important was getting the bill through and getting it intact if possible. It's a big bill. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of stimulus. They don't actually term it a stimulus. They talk about it as, this is the rescue plan. The stimulus will come when we do the next bill, which potentially is a $2 trillion infrastructure package, which also addresses clean energy issues. But at this stage, they've implemented the rescue plan. Uh, It's going to have a big impact on the economy. Public and private sector economists are both saying it'll make a significant contribution to GDP growth, uh, up to uh, increasing it up to 8% in the second half of the year, or numbers to that effect. Um, the game plan within the administration is to get on co- top of COVID over the next six to eight months and then see the recovery consolidate as a lot of the fiscal and monetary power that's already in the system is there in the in the form of pent-up demand as people become more confident to spend starts to get unleashed on the economy and that'll have a major stimulatory effect not just on the US economy but on the global economy Uh, and it'll affect everything uh, from industrial production to commodity prices and there's quite a major potential impact for Australia towards the end of the year and going into next year. Um, The game plan then is to put up a major infrastructure package uh, to address the infrastructure gap in the US, which is estimated at between three to four trillion dollars, combining this package with doing more uh, to promote investment in clean energy. the administration take climate change seriously. the president refers to it as an existential threat there 's a whole of government effort to address it here in the United States, so An infrastructure package will be part of addressing the clean energy revolution that the administration wants to see in the US. We've just had the the quad. Um, A lot of people were saying in the initial phases, the administration is going to focus on domestic policy and not so much on foreign policy, but, you know, no administration can afford not to be focused on foreign policy from day one. But the, the message we got from the administration very early on was that allies and partners come first. There was a lot of deliberation, a lot of consultation with allies and partners before, for example, Secretary of State Blinken and President Biden engaged with their Chinese counterparts. This was a very deliberate signal by the administration of its focus on promoting allies and partners and exploiting the fact that one of the unique advantages of the U.S. is its network of alliances and partnerships, particularly in our part of the world, in the Indo-Pacific. The Quad last weekend was an example of the Biden administration saying not everything that the previous administration did should just be reflexively thrown out. The Quad had been revitalized in the last three or four years what this administration did was to embrace it and to own it and to take it to the next level, thereby sending a very strong signal to the region about US leadership in the Indo-Pacific. And this, Pacific, and this leadership in the Indo-Pacific is very specific in its focus and impact. It's not just rhetoric. While there was symbolism in the four leaders coming together, What was also important is they signed off on major initiatives on vaccines, essentially to sustainably and permanently increase vaccine production capacity in Indo-Pacific, not just for this pandemic, but future pandemics, to sign off on a quad working group on climate change, the four nations working together on climate ambition and on technology partnerships to promote low emissions, and a quad working group on critical technology, Now, this is something which is addressed in some of the material that's being presented here today. There are these areas of technology now increasingly which impact on national security or have national security implications. And as the U.S. thinks about how it competes with China because they see dealing with China as a competition, technology is the area that they want to compete in and they recognise they cannot do it on their own They have to do it with allies and partners. So they're thinking about what the supply chains look in this post-pandemic world, particularly for areas of critical technology, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, space, cyber, hypersonics, the list goes on. A lot of work going on bilaterally with a frontier tech dialogue that we have with the US, but also now increasingly the US is looking at these supply chains with allies and partners. The Quad Working Group will also look at issues around critical minerals. This is something we've discussed in the past. Very important for us to promote Australia's capacity to produce and to process critical minerals, which is so important, not only in military equipment, but also in electric vehicles in building batteries for backup and storage for renewable energy. A whole new set of opportunities opening up for mining industry in Australia, if we're part of the revolution that's coming in critical minerals. And we're already working with the US administration to promote Australian projects in that vein. Linus has just received a com contract from the Department of Defense in that regard to build a facility in Texas. But there's there's more to come. So the Quad has given us a great work plan to go forward. It sent a great signal to the region, a lot of cooperation with the administration. They're very deliberative in their approach. Their interagency processes are quite rigorous. Um, It's not as if you can just go to one person, one part of the administration and ask them to do this or that they're looking at everything systemically in a joined up way. When it comes to China, for example, there are reviews going on in the State Department, in the White House and in Defence, and these will all be joined up. But the point of, of those reviews is working out rigorously a plan, in this case to deal with China, and then sticking to that plan. In speaking about China, the point that's been made increasingly to us here is that the administration is not looking for some grand bargain. It's not as if they're going to put everything on the table and say, well, if you do more on climate, we're going to give away this or that on human rights or some other area. That's not how they say they will operate. And I believe them when they say that. Um, And while they're very keen to make progress on areas like climate, they don't believe that should be at the expense of other interests. And one of the points we've made to the US is that in any reset of policy with China, that there's a reset with allies and partners like Australia. Our view is that if we work together, the weight of countries and GDP can help to convince China that being part of the rules-based order is in their interest, rather than them seeking to upend the order in their own interest. We want a strong and prosperous China. But we have to live within a rules-based order in which all countries, big and small, have something of a level playing field to the extent that's possible in international relations. On climate change, let me say, we've already started to have a dialogue bilaterally around investing in low emission technologies. Uh, The US is very open to that, but their view is that that goes hand in hand with how we think about climate ambition. And our view is targets are something which are important in their own regard. And Australia is doing further work on what that means in the future as we go to COP26. But the important thing, if you're going to have credibility in setting targets is to show you can meet those targets. And in the past we've been able to meet or exceed our targets, better to under-promise and over-deliver. So our message to the administration is let's work together on technologies which really moved the dial when it comes to emissions reduction. They're very open to that, but that does mean big investments on their part and on our part. And so that's something which I find actually quite exciting for us to be working on. The final area I just want to talk about, I don't want to take up too much of your time, is an issue that was alluded to in the last session around the national technology industrial base we're very keen to further integrate our defence industrial bases. It's partly, as the panel mentioned before, a matter of being able to showcase technologies that are available that that can contribute to um, defence supply in a way that's mutually beneficial. But we're also finding, as part of the national technological industrial base, under legislation that was enacted a few years ago, There's a bit of red tape in how we operate in that space, which potentially crimps our capacity to do everything we can to have interoperability and to come up with really innovative stuff. So we're going to be working with the Congress and with the Department of State, Department of Commerce, Department of Defence on ways to reduce that red tape, including getting legislation passed that can help with that. So for us, It's moving forward in a practical way on on all these sorts of areas. The the very final one is trade. Uh, We want to start with baby steps, because we realize that at the moment, trade policy is not a priority for the administration. Investing in the US is. But we believe digital trade agreement, whether bilaterally or regionally, in Indo-Pacific would be a great way to reassert US economic engagement in the region and it's important it's important in its own right particularly for smaller businesses that want to be trade that want to be able to trade across international borders and have their payment systems recognized in other countries for example it's all about reducing the cost of doing business so a digital trade agreement that helps to stand set standards in the region is important but we're also looking to develop a coalition of the willing here in Washington of stakeholders who also want um, to help work with us in persuading the administration and the Congress to reconsider in due course the Trans-Pacific Partnership. At the moment, it's a bit like Hamlet without the Prince. Uh, the US decided not to proceed with joining the TPP, having designed it. But the TPP is important. With the US in there, is a big stake in the ground about US economic and strategic engagement in the region. It maximises the benefits of the TPP. It helps to set rules in the region. At the moment, the biggest trade agreement in the region is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership between ASEAN and its free trade partners, which include, of course, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea and China. So. Part of our argument is a strategic argument. And my final point is that in Washington today, in the Congress, the argument that really gets people galvanized, and it is very much a bipartisan argument, is around how does the US compete with China? And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, is preparing a $500 billion bill around technology, that will help to promote the US in the contest with China. They characterise it a bit like the space race in the 50s and 60s, when the US was galvanised by the Soviet Union to decide to put a man on the moon and invest big time in leading technologies. That's the sort of analogy people are making, not because they think there's another Cold War going on now, but rather that this is the scale of the challenge that the US faces. And there's very strong views within the administration, the Congress, that that competition has to occur. And while there are areas where there will be cooperation, whether it's on the pandemic, climate change, or nuclear nonproliferation, there is competition and the US is determined to win it. Um, I'll stop there. I've probably gone on for too long, but thank you for the opportunity to be with us and for showing such an interest in what the centre is doing, both in Sydney and in Perth.
0: Thanks, Arthur. Um, I wonder if I could just pop a question back to you that picks up really, I think, nicely, in my view, at least, on on those remarks about the scale of the China challenge being recognised in a bipartisan way across the Congress. For Schumer to propose a, an aggressive spending package that is largely domestically focused, do you also see that same appetite um, for defense spending uh, and in particular, and perhaps a, at least a continuation of current levels of spent defense spending or even an uptick, uh, but with that same focus on delivering kit and um, presence to the Indo-Pacific?
1: I think the best we can hope for is defence spending over the next few years will probably flatline. I don't think they're expanding, they're they're expecting a big expansion, but you're right. Very big focus on smart spending, spending on technology and capability. they realise there are some areas where they have to look at policy again, like how much do they renovate or refurbish the nuclear arsenal, for example. But but overall, their focus is very much on high technology and how that plays out. And yes, you're right, it has a big domestic spin-off as well, and it is consistent with the argument or the narrative they've put about investing in America and improving the competitiveness of the, of, of America. And it goes with what they 're saying about improving the skills of the domestic workforce mm-hmm. and also increasing domestic r d. somehow this will all have to be brought together, right, but certainly the intent is there and it 's quite strong, and there 's a quite a bipartisan
0: flavor to it thanks Arthur. Um, Gordon Flake has got a question for you Arthur
2: um, Mr. Master, you mentioned um, that in your assessment, the U.S. is unlikely to move in in the short term on on joining the TPP or even the current formation of the CPTPP, and that tracks with everything that I've heard from friends back in Washington, D.C. So my question for you is, uh, what is Australia doing on that front? Uh, We have a chapter in this report, obviously, uh, which is basically a, a policy agenda to try to get the United States back in the TPP. The Perth USA's Centre just on Friday released uh, another report specifically on that, looking at it with perspectives of the region. Obviously, with the UK making their own bid for membership, uh, uh, we're pitching to try to get Korea due to the same thing, etc. There is a bit of movement here that hasn't been there for a long time. And the reason I ask this of you is that Australia has been in a remarkably difficult position for the last three years. Together with Japan, I would argue that on the international trade liberalization front, uh, Australia and Japan did more, more meaningfully than any other agreement or development, even including RCEP in the last four years, in miraculously resurrecting the TPP and holding the door open. But now all of a sudden, we've got an administration that comes in who's obviously distracted with COVID and economic recovery and infrastructure. And yet, if they do intend to compete with China, without the TPP, to use an American phrasing, they're all hat with no cattle. Right? There's no other initiative. There's nothing else we discussed today that can take the place of that agreement. And so the question I really have is, what are we doing? What should we be doing as Australia to try to get the United States back into that agreement in a productive and meaningful way in in a relatively short timeframe?
1: Well, thanks, Gordon. A couple of points. The first is to encourage like-minded countries to, to join. You mentioned the UK and there are others. Um, it's ironic, but, you know, we sometimes mention to our American friends that the Chinese are starting to um, to sort of sneak around the TPP as well. Of course, they would have trouble meeting some of the, the standards that are set, particularly in relation to areas like subsidies or state-owned enterprises or intellectual property. And that's, of course, the good thing about the TPP that it forces countries to enact high standards in some of these areas. So the first thing is to keep a sense of momentum with the TPP by having like-minded partners come in. And the second is, as I alluded to before, to build a bit of a coalition of the willing here in Washington in terms of stakeholders uh, within the broader trade community, uh, some of the chambers here that have quite an interest in trade. I I don't think, one of the points we've made to the administration, when we're having either public events or private events like breakfasts, talking to people in the White House or in the State Department, is that globalization has its issues, but ultimately in the balance, when you weigh everything in the balance, it's been overwhelmingly good. And what we should be doing is addressing the downsides and trying to build on the upsides. And that we recognize the US has got to do more domestically to invest in its own competitiveness. But we don't see necessarily that the two are mutually exclusive and that America can actually benefit. And we talk about the fact that tariffs, you've always got to try and remind people, you know, tariffs actually have costs and those costs are borne by other people in your own mm-hmm. community. And that's something. So what we're saying is countries like mine or ours. Singapore, New Zealand, countries that genuinely subscribe to free trade, what they're doing here in the States is they are putting the argument again for why trade and globalisation are good and why they matter. And we shouldn't underestimate the power over time of putting the argument about the benefits of doing more together.
2: I would just recall that your two times predecessor, Ambassador Kim Kim Beasley, during the first and initial debate over TPP in the United States, was regularly down in Alabama and Mississippi because uh, Americans found that Australians were far better at advocating to the American public the advantages of free trade uh, than our own members of Congress were. So maybe there's a road trip uh, in in your horizon if if the COVID conditions um, allow. Simon, if I could just go on to two kind of takeaways I've had from the day, from which I would welcome the ambassador's reaction and maybe addition to them as well. It's been a really rich discussion today, um, and I've learned a lot from the different sectors that that augment uh, the content that's in the report itself. Uh, part of it, um, particularly from this last panel, which I thought I would bring in a bit of a WA perspective, um, it, you won't be surprised, sitting as we do in Australia's Indian Ocean Capital, we're very much fans of the whole framing of the Indo-Pacific, um, and we're, we're sensitive to kind of shifts away from that. We've spent a good chunk of the last two years with a bit of wariness around what, what our friends in the region, in Singapore, Malaysia, you know, would refer to as a retreat into Oceania. And part of that is, to be really blunt, if you're in an East Coast audience uh, and you're in defense or DFAT or you spend a career in Canberra, you spend a lot of your time and you, you've cut your teeth professionally working in East Timor, in PNG, in the South Pacific. Uh, and, and so for the last two and a half, three years, as, as Canberra has articulated a Pacific step up, you know, that's of course good. On the one hand, we never stepped down. We've never gone anywhere. We've always been very prevalent in the area. But at the same time, it is perceived in the region as a bit of a, a step back, a retreat to Oceania. Uh, and, and part of that is just because we haven't articulated the Indo-Pacific side with the same vigor, the same strength as we had done in the past in terms of that process. Now, how, there, there's a, bringing the United States back into this discussion, I had an opportunity in the beginning of 2019, pre-COVID, to put back on my American hat and attend a, a U.S.-led Uh, you know, CSIS, you know, Pacific Islands Forum discussion in Fiji, um, where, you know, there was, for the first time in my career, a significant think tank level of of attention applied to the Pacific Islands. Uh, But the interesting feedback loop I'm talking about here is Australia, you know, recognizing growing Chinese influence in the region, raised volume, which means that the U.S. paid attention the way it never has before, right? There is no Pacific Island forum lobby, and the ambassador can back me up on this. The Pacific Islands themselves don't have a large voice in Washington, D.C., right? But Australia does. And so when Australia voiced concern, the Americans paid attention, but the Americans paying attention meant that the American response was to ask Australia to do more, right? So our expression of concern is heard in Washington, which in turn tells Australia to do more. And again, as good as that is in the Pacific Islands, my worry is that it distracts us away from... The, the broader shift of the Indo-Pacific, from India, from Indonesia, from uh, Huang Lutu's comments and Southeast Asia as a whole, where the real geostrategic game is going forward. And so in that context, one of the things I heard over and over again in every panel today was the Quad. And to me, the Quad is, is the vehicle for dragging Australia more forcefully back into the Indo-Pacific. And the great irony of this is that Historically, Australia spent a long time telling everybody in the region, the Indo-Pacific is not the quad. And, and now, in some respects, the quad may be the tool to help us kind of reinforce those broader shifts and trends in the Indo-Pacific. Um, the second broader observation I'd have, and then I'll kind of wrap up here and, and welcome additions from Simon and for the ambassador to the other, uh, is, is um, having spent 25 years in Washington before moving to Perth, um, I, I – I, the last four years, as you might imagine, have been a challenge right, in terms of, of focus on the region in particular. It was really refreshing to hear President Biden in his speech to the Munich Security Forum say with a very strong declaration, America is back. Right? And you might imagine among some of our, our European allies, or U.S. European allies, uh, there was some expressions of, 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 of skepticism from Germany in particular just because they had been on the brunt of so many of these issues. However, what we have seen in the last several weeks, in fact, it's useful to remember, it's only been eight weeks since the inauguration. In eight weeks, the statements we heard today, that remarkable quad presidents or leaders level meeting, and the, and the, the document that came out of that, the coordination that was required in that process, the fact that the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of, of, the, of, of State are now in Korea and Japan, Uh, And the fact that the Secretary of Defense is going on from there to India. Would any of you have predicted that within the first nine weeks of a U.S. administration, the Secretary of Defense would be in Delhi, right? And that just tells you what a different world that we're living in. And so when the notion that America is is back, obviously there's a lot of resourcing issues. There's skepticism that I just expressed in terms of the trading architecture. But when it comes to the initial steps and the prioritization of those steps, that has been quite remarkable in that front. So those are two big takeaways that I take from, from this day thus far. Um, and again, I welcome others that Simon might have or the ambassador might have. I'm not sure how, Simon, you want to wrap up the remaining 10 minutes or so that we've um, got. So.
0: Well, real quickly, Gordon, um, my, your, your comment about optimism, um, I, I think that's the right one. Um, just picking up on, on what Gordon just noted um, about America, pardon me, American presence and... I'd also point out that quad leaders meeting happened less than 24 hours after the president had addressed the nation after the passage of, of the COVID uh, recovery uh, bill. Um, like, And again, we haven't talked a lot about it here today. Our focus is really sort of on the Alliance agenda, but I don't think many Australians fully appreciate how big a deal that spending package is and how much is in there and how much of a change it's going to make. There's a lot of money being tossed into houses that are going to spend it almost immediately, starting literally this week, checks are going to start
2: arriving. Wow. Um, our, our GDP is about $1.5 trillion, and that package is $1.9 trillion. <laughs> so the, the entire Australian GDP in one bill, right? Is-
0: um, um, that's number one. And then for the other, the other piece of news, it's got a bit more of a domestic thing, but I'm going to pull this together in a minute. Is the pace at which um, immunizations, uh, the vaccine is being rolled out in the United That's States, is, is surpassing expectations. And um, if you get some economic tailwind out of uh, recovery, plus that sense of confidence, um, it's not just that the US is back, it's something that senior officials say to the rest of the world. The rest of the world might start to actually see and believe that as well. So. This ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, to get out and start doing big things on the international stage, while at the same time, taking care of a lot of really important business at home, I think is enormously significant. And it's a remark we only make in passing in our domestic overview chapter, but to understand the connection between a self-confident America and Australia's national interest. It is in Australia's national interest that America be back that America feel that it's back and the rest of the world see that it's back. And so at that level, um, things are, are tracking in a really, I think, positive way, number one. And I'll link that to one thing Greg Moriarty said. I thought it was enormously significant that a sitting secretary of defense um, said uh, stressed the multidimensional nature of American power in the Indo-Pacific. I've heard Greg stress that in multiple occasions when he's, when he's spoken, but he referred to... Our, right? Greg Murray, Secretary of Defense, referred to American culture, American economic power, the power of American economic institutions, and people-to-people contacts. Um, Above all, and it's sort of deeply ingrained in what we do at the U.S. Studies Center, is to understand that that full... depth, And we can't do it justice as a a relatively small um, operation, but to understand the depth um, of, uh, of American power in, 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 its, in the full sense of that term. Um, but, but I think for a Secretary of Defense, for him to be as mindful of that and for that to come so naturally as it did to him in, in addressing this room today, um, I just linking that with these other trends that are at work in the, in the United States. Um, Arthur, did you wanna to respond to anything that Gordon and I just mentioned by some of those bigger picture wrap ups?
1: Uh, Just two points. On the Indo-Pacific, I I mean, the last few years, including when I was in uh, the National Security Committee, we had really embraced the nomenclature of the Indo-Pacific. But last year, when we put money into that Southeast Asia package, I think what we were doing was showing we've had the Pacific step up. There's now this step up, in effect, in Southeast Asia. And I think that was enormously significant and a down payment on our, uh, I suppose, down, uh, good faith in seeking to engage the region. The other thing that we've done, and I think we've been successful with this because we put a lot of groundwork into this before the administration came in with people like Kurt Campbell, before they were actually offered positions in the administration, was to say ASEAN centrality is really important. Countries in the region don't want to feel as if they're being asked to choose publicly. Uh, Prime Minister Lee of Singapore made this point the other day. What they want is to be able to get on with China because they can't move the, from the neighbourhood. But what they want is the US to be engaged in all those dimensions that Greg Moriarty talked about. So the Indo-Pacific, that will increasingly be the uh, phrase de jour, if I can put it like that. It's, it's really been embraced in the context of the quad. Um, I think in terms of your point, Simon, on optimism, plenty of grounds for optimism. But what that means is that it does provide us with um, some great opportunities to work with them. Um, but we have to recognise that when it comes to things like democracy and human rights. They're very serious about that agenda. They wanna have that summit for democracy. They realize they come to the table, they gotta be humble, because there's things in the US they need to do to get their house in order. But with that summit, they're saying to the countries that are gonna be invited, we have things to do. You come to the table with things you wanna do to improve democracy and governance and how we deal with corruption, how we deal with autocracies, how we deal with misinformation, foreign interference, which undermines the pillars of democracy. It's quite a rich agenda. So don't underestimate the power of that agenda as part of US foreign policy going forward. And that, again, is very clearly linked to their domestic agenda as well. It's, it's what President Biden said. It's not the example of US power. It's the power of America's example, and the two linked together domestically and internationally.
2: Can I build on one final thing, just tying together your comments and the ambassador's? The ambassador gave some really important remarks about the underlying trends in the US economy, pent up demand, et cetera. And so not surprisingly, the Biden administration, just out of sheer necessity, decision to focus on COVID, 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 and then the COVID Relief Act, which obviously then is the economic stimulus that comes out of that means that my guess is if you look at the Australian media more broadly, and you went and polled your average Australian on the street, uh, their view of the United States in the last year has suffered tremendously because of COVID handling. And and that perception is carried over to the economy. uh, And to perception, again, I've seen poll after poll, perceptions about long-term trajectories of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so Simon's mm-hmm. comment that obviously about the strong connection between a self-confident United States and Australia's national interest is a really important one. And that means an economically vibrant and growing United States is something that's directly in the Australian national interest. Uh, and so the hope is, uh, and again, I think the ambassador's given us some cause for optimism in this, is that if you look ahead you know, towards the latter half of this year, the next year coming with COVID, under control relatively with vaccinations proceeding to the point where seventy five million doses as of not seventy five million doses 70, over one hundred million doses but seventy five million people vaccinated at this point remarkable progress on, on that front and if that does indeed lead to this economic rebound with the pent up stimulus, then all of a sudden that dynamic shifts our own positioning in the world uh, and it puts us in a much better place and so that, that's, that's a trend, I think, that's worth highlighting, uh, and it's good to have that coming out of Washington, D.C., because uh, those of us watching the political dr- drama will remain focused on the 50-50 Senate. Uh, you know, Simon and I do a monthly, I think most of you are aware of it, a monthly U.S. politics and policy chat. Uh, last week, last two, or two weeks ago, we had Zoe Daniels, uh, the, the former ABC bureau chief in Washington, D.C., who just published a new book called Greetings from Trump Land, And if that's what you're focused on, you have a very different perception of of the trajectory of the United States. Uh, And so it's useful for us to have from the ambassador in Washington, D.C., some context for what he sees in terms of uh, the trajectory of the United States. So thank you, Mr. Ambassador.
0: Yeah, indeed, Arthur. Thank you so much for your time. It's uh, in the evening there and with the uh, switch uh, to daylight saving there, an hour later... On the, on the clock at least, than, than we thought it w- would be initially. So thank you, Arthur, for your time. Again, thank you. uh, supporting the United States Study Center, always a pleasure, thank you so much. And, and that'll be the last word. Um, I want to thank everybody uh, for your attendance this morning and, and thank you, Charge, for your time as well. Um, busy schedule here in Canberra uh, for giving us your time and sticking around uh, to hear the ambassador's remarks um, and, and just to thank you for your, your interest in the topic, number one, but in turn, the, the two centres and our mission. Um, you heard me open the day by saying we are dedicated to this idea of our work being timely and relevant. Uh, that's why we're doing this here today in Canberra. That's why we've given the Alliance Agenda um, as the organising idea around, around the essays. Um, and why I think these, uh, the findings and the recommendations, I hope, and I expect will, have legs going over the balance of this year, as, as again, as, as the people with .gov.au email addresses uh, turn their attention, uh, and uh, .state.gov email addresses uh, turn their attention uh, to OSMIN uh, later this year. Uh, it, it, as I said earlier, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honour uh, to, to run a centre with that charge. Um, and um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, thanks for the morning, uh, and, and uh, we'll see you at another United States Study Centre or Perth, US, Asia Centre or a joint event uh, in the not-too-distant future. Thank you.